Uh, Let's begin with prayer, shall we? Our Father, we're grateful that you have brought us together again on this Lord's Day, um, centering us again around your word, a recognition of who you are, um, a recognition of who we are, in desperate need of you, and then um, the renewal to go out and to be salt and light in a dark world. Lord, thank you for that drama that we get to participate in together every Sunday. Uh, let it shape our identities and, and the, the identities of those that we love so much. And, and Lord, draw us together even this morning as we talk about difficult conceptual matters, but give the, the teacher some sense of clarity and those who are here to learn um, clarity as well. And, and if any of that happens, Father, we'll be quick to give you the thanks and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on in. There's room in the end, I believe. Um, last week, someone asked, the, the conversation came up last week for those who weren't here. And just so that you know, um, I, I, this is a, a seven week class. I will put the car in reverse. Okay. So we'll, we'll go back a little bit and then go forward. Um, and that'll just be kind of part of our, our way of moving forward. But so, some folks asked about homework. Um, I've never had anyone ask that before. Um, and this is what I thought would be the best way to handle this. I, I will give you my email address. I'll write it up here on the board before we leave. Don't let me forget. Matter of fact, I'll do it now. Um, uh, that's my email address. If you if you want to read something, fire me an email and I'll, uh, I'll I'll attach a document. I've got a few things that I've, I've I've done on this. I've got some other other matters that might be of interest too. Okay, so if you would like homework to read, <laughs> God bless you. Um, that's wonderful. Uh, now I, I told last week that you know I, I gave a little bit of a scope and sequence of how we're going to go about this class, and we're, we're already off of it. Um, and probably won't get quite back on it the way I, I originally intended, but that's okay. This is a kind of living organism of a class. Um, last week and today as well, I would like to sort of finish up thinking out loud with you about what some of the interpretive and theological handles that we need to think about when we come to reading the Bible. Uh, when we come to reading the Bible, which is composed of an old and a New Testament. Naomi, would you mind closing that door? Um, of an Old and, and a New Testament, primarily. And, uh, you know, you, you know, having read the Old Testament, and that's where we're going to park primarily, um, because that's God's preferred testament. No, I'm just joking, Osvaldo. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, we're going to stay in the Old Testament for the most part in this class. Um, and you know, don't you, when you get into the world of the Old Testament, that all of a sudden you're you're drinking some pretty strange soup. There are there are cultural and historical hurdles that have to be overcome, um, and that takes some getting used to. It takes some reorientation. And I would say, when you get to Lent or Easter tide, and you start to watch the CNN or the History Channel documentaries. This is what tends to be emphasized when you come to the Bible, the fact that it's a document that's born out of the milieu of the ancient Near East, or for the New Testament, the Greco-Roman period. 
and that that is the primary lens by which the Testaments are to be read through these historical lenses. I'm going to talk about this in multiple ways this morning and maybe try to give you some sense of how I try to adjudicate and think through these matters. Um, But I wanted to lay out last week, before we even got out of the gate, that that particular understanding of the Bible, that it has a problem, and that its problem is the primary critical issue that we have to overcome before we can understand it. And what is that problem? That it's culturally and historically other and distant. But that drives the interpretive car. And I was wanting to sort of lay a claim last week, and we'll try to reinforce it today. That's not the basic instinct of the church's interpretive tradition. The basic instinct of the church's interpretive tradition is not to understand the Bible as locked in the world of the ancient Near East. Chariots, um, Assyria, Babylon. It's not locked back there. Or... Um, Caesar Augustus, or um, Cicero and Quintilian, or you know the list could go on. It's not locked there. Now we need some nuance because, as one of my colleagues would say, what part of the Bible is cultural? Well, from Genesis to the maps, right? I mean, from the beginning all the way to the end, all of it's born out of a particular time and place. I'm not trying to in any way um, attenuate or make that a, a less than. I'm just trying to put us in a right frame of bringing the right questions first and prioritizing our questions. In, in the history of the Christian tradition, the Bible is not viewed as something that's ancient and old. The Bible is primarily viewed as something that's alive and young and dynamic. This is the means. These are the words. Uh, this is the given reality uh, by which God, through His Spirit, communicates His very Son, His saving Son, to us. So that the words of Moses back in that you know, 12th or 13th century world, wherever you locate Moses, the words of Moses and then the words of David and Elijah and Solomon and Isaiah and Micah all the way up into Malachi, and then let's go on moving into the New Testament, Matthew and John and Paul, that those words that were written so long ago by the effective and communicating power of God, speak a life-giving presence of God into the current moment itself. So this huge gap that you see between our world and the world of the Bible, wherever one locates that with whatever ever text you're reading, that huge gap, and if you've read any in, you know, Enlightenment and 19th century philosophy, you maybe have heard of a name named G.E. Lessing. You know, Lessing's famous dictum was, um, historical accidents can never be the means for universal truths. That's a kind of a, it's a, we call that Lessing's big, broad, ugly ditch. And what does that ditch mean? That means that truths that are located in a historically particular moment, like Jesus and his disciples, like Isaiah in the southern kingdom in the 8th century, like David in the 10th century, those historically particular truths cannot be the means by which we think about universal truths of philosophy or theology. And the Christian response to that is wrong, right? No, nine, niched, no sir. Why? Because the gap that's there between whatever world you're dealing with in the text and our world is a gap that's filled by the promised presence of Jesus via the Holy Spirit. That Trinitarian frame of reading, that, and if you don't take anything away from the next eight, eight, seven weeks or whatever we're doing together, take that away. 
When you're reading the Bible alone, and maybe even better, when we're together and we're reading the Bible, we're seeking to think about the unwise steward that we heard today. What a fascinating text, right? The unwise manager. Or we're hearing someone preach a sermon on Isaiah. Or you're in your small group study in your home and you're working through Tim Keller's study on Galatians or whatever you're doing. That that activity is by the very nature of what you're studying. An activity that's meant to bring you into God's self communicating presence. And I, 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 it's almost like um, you know, earth plates should shift when we say that. And because these are, are massive philosophical problems. And those of you who've done like philosophy 101 as an undergrad, you know it. I mean, it takes you know, some atheist or agnostic philosopher just to immediately begin to say something like, well, that's an impossibility because infinity, conceptually and, and rationally understood, can never communicate itself through a finite means. How in the world can infinity, um, God, communicate himself through nouns, verbs, um, adjectives, and adverbs? How can, how can God do that? And, and um, this might not be a very satisfying answer, but the answer to that is, how does God do that? He determines himself to do it. I mean, God has told us that that's what he's doing. That he's taking human words and communicating the divine word, the logos, to us through this particular book. And in doing so, he's bringing us into relationship and, and crucially, saving relationship with him. For God to speak the word of God is God redeeming and reconciling and drawing us into his very life. So I quoted last week um, Herman Bavink. I mentioned last week, if you're looking for a good dog name, I think Bavink would be a fine one. Um, Herman Bavink made the claim um, that the Bible is the eternal, youthful Word of God. What's the doctrine? If you're in Bible Doctrines 101 that we're talking about here, it's the doctrine of inspiration. It's when Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the Bible is God-breathed. And this was the crucial turn of phrase that Bavink made last week that I think is a helpful way of conceiving of the Bible or thinking about the Bible. And that is, not only was the Bible inspired in the moment where God's Spirit was operative in the normal affairs of Isaiah's communication, in the normal affairs of Paul writing a letter to Colossae, not only was God's Spirit operative and inspiring at those particular moments, but the Bible is God-breathed now. It's inspired now. We don't think about that simply as a historical fact. We think about that as a reality of the character of the Bible now. So you know, I mean, you just feel, and some of you, I hope you raise questions on this, but can't you feel it? I mean, these, I'm not making any neutral claim. I'm not coming at this and saying, now, if we look at the Bible and we compare it to the literature of Cicero, you can see the quality of it. I wouldn't even dare go down that road. Because the quality of the literature of the Bible and the Old Testament compared to Cicero or Homer or Virgil, I mean, don't tell anybody I said this, but it's not even in the same ball field, right? So it's not about the quality of the literature. This is a confession of faith that's rooted in our location in Christ church that helps shape the ways in which we talk about what the Bible is. And why do we talk about that way? Not because of any particular quality of the words themselves, 
but because of what God has done in His own grace to accommodate Himself to human language and in the words of Calvin, to goo-goo-ga-ga at the crib of His little children like you and me. That's what the Bible is. It's God prattling to you and to me. It's God saying, listen, you can never in, in a full and totalizing way know who I am. Your knowledge of me will never be co-equal to my knowledge of myself. Never. But I'm going to stoop low in a baby in a manger, in human words, verbs, and nouns, and adjectives, and I'm going to communicate my very self to you in a way that's real and true and saving, corresponding to who I really am. It's not complete and total, but it is sufficient and true and real. And that, to me changes the whole ball game when it comes to reading the Bible in the church and as individuals. I mean, I, I teach at a university. Right? I mean, I'm on a university campus. Osvaldo is with me as well. So we, we know what's going on. I mean, you, you can go into the English department, English 101, the Bible is literature. Um, the King James Version as literature. That's a fascinating subject matter. I mean, in fact, the English language is probably shaped and preserved by the King James Version and the Book of Common Prayer. I mean, what a fascinating area of study. You can go over to a religion department, a kind of bottom-up view of the faith that's a comparative religion. So we're going to talk about Buddhism and Hinduism, and we're going to talk about Islam, and then we're going to talk a little bit about Christianity. And all of that can be fascinating and interesting. But that's not reading the Bible as Holy Scripture. And I think that's a very important claim to make. And it's not that I can't learn something from the English department and the religion department. I might learn a lot, actually, with some tools that will help me appreciate the Bible even more. But let's be clear. In the words of Hilary of Poitiers, the 4th century Trinitarian theologian, Hilary of Poitiers said, the Bible as Christian Scripture does not even exist outside of the church. It doesn't exist. The church is the social location. What we're doing now, individually and corporately, what we do together by confessing God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and drawing together in communion and worship that then compels us out into the world as witness, when we're doing that and we come together, that's where God's Word is operative and effective in making God's presence known in the world. And that is, that's an article of faith. And so I tried to lay the groundwork for that last week because I don't think um, I don't think we can talk about it enough. I don't. And, and around here at the Advent, I got to say I'm grateful for this. We're Bible people here. I mean, we really. Um, I mean, just think. You know, if somebody donated two tons of Bibles to the church. I mean, it's incredible. Um, and we want people to read the Bible and to talk about the Bible. Why? Just because you know we we like to wrestle and read texts closely. You know, well maybe. But because we're coming at this because we know that the Bible is divine address. It's God's speech. It's God's first person speech to you and to me. And we know that when God speaks to His own, He saves them and heals them and redeems them. That's why we, that's why we come together. So I, a lot more things to say this morning. But let me stop there uh, before we... I'll put the car in neutral for a second at the stoplight. Um, what do you want to ask? Anything you want to bat around about this? Anything that tripped you up? Drew, yes. Your comment um, that it's the coming together, reading the Bible together, coming together in the church that brings it alive, and contrast that to someone deeply, solely 
you know, delving into the Bible and, and praying about the Bible or reading it on their own um, help, help clarify those two act, activities. And yeah. 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 It's a, it's a great question, and it's one that probably demands more attention than what I'll be able to give in this very sort of facile answer. But, you know, the tradition that I I was reared in was, I, I think, would properly be termed a kind of pietistic tradition um, in the best and worst sense of that term. And what I mean by that is the pinnacle of the of religious experience of, and what it means to be shaped religiously is an individualized understanding of the faith. So I go to church and I'm with at my church and that's that's very good. I'm, I go to worship God there, but where I'm most authentically Christian is in my private communion with me, Jesus, and my Bible. That's where I'm most authentically Christian. Um, and I would want to say, to make sure that I'm clear on this, those moments are important and rich, and, and the Scriptures talk about them all over the place. The Psalter uses first-person language all the time, and I think we can take that at face value. Uh, my Oh God, my God. How, so this is very personal, it's very individual. But what I would want to say is, God has not called us to be isolated individuals. He has called out His people as a people. And I would also want to say that I think we're most authentically Christian. Not when I'm alone. That's important. But if we're not most authentically Christian, then we're most authentically Christian when we're in community together. When we're worshiping together. Where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am in their midst. It doesn't take a lot. But what you begin to see is that communion, if I can use technical language here, that, that I-thou character. I'm a self and there's another. And my true self, my true selfhood, is best understood in relationship to the other. Um, that's a reflection of what it means to be made in the image of God. I mean, isn't it fascinating? Genesis 1, and this is, of course, a massively d- debated topic. What does it mean to be made imago dei, in the image of God, right? Um, but what does it say in Genesis 1, 2? And he made them in the image of God, image bearers. What's the next phrase? Male and female created he them. We often forget to talk about that. What is that? Well, in otherness and relationship, right? We reflect what that image bearing is by being in relationship with others. So we don't even know what it is to be without being in in communion. Um, you know, so I made that solipsistic joke in here, didn't I, last week? I mean, is, did we talk about this? Um, you know, solipsism is the philosophical view that the reality does not exist outside of the individualized self and psyche. And there are bona fide philosophers who believe, believe that. You know, be, to be solipsistic means there is no reality out there. All reality is here inside of my own perceiving and conceptual sphere. And Alvin Plantinga in a public lecture said that he, um, he met somebody um, in a philosophy department that really was solipsistic. And he asked one of the colleagues, he said, so what's it like to work? with a real solipsist, someone who believes that they're, that they're the only thing that exists in the world. And the answer was, was brilliant. The answer was, we treat him very well, because if he goes, we all go. <laughs> that was good. I mean, I think that's the, I mean, that's the kind of Christian, you know, we, we are leaning against that um, individualized thing. So, I mean, think about the, the Psalms of Ascent. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I'm glad to come together on Sunday morning, even with you know the difficulty of my particular children in the row. But I'm glad to come together and with you all confess what we believe together. 
and to embody that, and because that's shaping me in ways that I don't even know shaping you as well. So I, I think that's what I'm trying to get at with this. Um, that we, you know, I don't want to downplay the individual. I think that's very important. But I want to frame the individual in the larger framework of, of the corporate being brought together in a community. But yeah. Quick, quick question, just shift in a little bit. Yeah. Uh, earlier you were speaking about the scripture of God and so on. Uh, let me put the question this way. And, uh, how can written text, signs of ink on a piece of paper, that's, that's what our Bibles are, signs of ink on a piece of paper, how can they be the word of God? Yeah, that's a great question. Because I think I find a lot of people think of it as a magical process. Yeah. If you remember, we talked, for those of you who are last week, again, in that Bavink quote, Bavink said, we cannot view the scriptures deistically. And we don't view the scriptures deistically. We don't view the world deistically. What does that mean? We don't think that God was involved in the origination of it and then just let it go. Right, he creates the world according to natural processes, and then he lets it go, and then he lets it do its thing. And when the sun comes up tomorrow, or however that works, um, that's going to be the natural laws and properties of this world at work. That's a certain kind of view of deism, where we, I think we would want to say, yes, there are natural laws at work, but God is the one that's sustaining and holding all that together. And when the sun comes up tomorrow, look, he did it again. Um, and the same with the Bible. It's not just God sort of inspiring an original moment and then now I'm going to let my Bible go off into the sunset to do its thing all on an automatic pilot. This is where the Reformation tradition, and if you've been around Advent long enough, you know we talk about the Reformation tradition a lot. It's shaped our identity. And frankly, it shapes the Anglican tradition that we're a part of. The Reformation tradition would say there is no word without the Spirit. There is no word. So how do black words, that's a great question, how do black words on white pages become the very life-giving word of God to us? By the effective and operative work of the Spirit. And that is not a satisfying philosophical answer. I want to lay my cards on the table. That is not a satisfying answer to those who are seeking to give a rational, philosophical account of the matter. But it is the right answer from a Christian perspective. This is where, I'm sorry, I keep quoting Bavink. I'm going to do it one more time. Bobbing said, when a Christian, when someone asks you, why do you believe that as a Christian? Your answer is because I believe it's in the Word of God. And then when they ask you the follow-up question, well, how can you know that it's the Word of God? Bobbing says, then a Christian cannot answer. What does he mean by that? Cannot answer in a way that will satisfy the premise of the question. Because how's the only way that you answer that? It's an article of faith. It's properly basic to the way in which I conceive and understand the world. Because God, by the power of the Spirit, has opened up my eyes and my mind and my heart to see and to believe. And I didn't generate that from within. And I didn't generate it by some neutral activity of the intellect either. I didn't do that. God did that for me. And, I, and, and I, again, I'll let, just so you know, you got Jenelette this morning. If you had somebody else, you might get a different view on this. And it would probably be better. But unfortunately, you got me. Um, people will give all kinds of narratival accounts of why they were converted. All kinds. Um, you know, I, I, um, I, I was struggling with the faith and then I went to a debate and the guy won the debate and so then I became a Christian and, or um, I started reading C.S. Lewis and all of my intellectual curiosities and problems were answered and now I'm a Christian. And I would never ever, this is us talking, I would never challenge anyone's narrative of their conversion. Never. Their experience of what happened. But I was just going to tell you what I hear every time, no matter what the story is. At some moment, 
undisclosed, unannounced, unanticipated, but at some moment, the work of the Spirit began to brood over the face of the deep. This is creation language, Genesis 1. The Spirit of God came and brooded over the face of your deep, your chaos, your tohu wavohu, the disorder of your own thinking, the fallenness of your whole human nature, even your thinking, and began to breathe His life-giving Spirit into you so that now what was at one time offensive and repugnant becomes attractive and drawing. And that's the work of the Spirit. And, you know, that's so even around Beeson, and you know this as well, Padilla, you know, we talk about there's an infinite gap between proof and persuasion. You have all the kind of proof you want to. But to be persuaded, to, to move from belief that and to belief in, which is personal. Now it's all on the line. That move right there demands the operative work of the Spirit. So whatever narrative people give, I like, that's wonderful. And I'm not being pejorative or you snarky. I'm just like, what a wonderful narrative. But internally I'm going, God allowed you to read that Lewis book and go, that makes sense. That makes sense. I'm going to believe that. Yeah. I'm getting a sense that um, that the Spirit encourages you to the Bible for clarification. It's almost a chicken and an egg kind of a thing. It's not, um, it's not that you go to the Bible to develop a faith. It's that God has provided the faith to go to the Bible to clarify and confirm. Um. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I wonder. I, I like the way you're framing that. I don't. Yeah. Well, that's my wife hears it every day. So, you know, so, um, I, my sense is, if I'm hearing sort of the under narrative of your question, um, yes, on this level, in the sense that it is the work of the Spirit that allows us to believe. You don't generate belief on your own. Ephesians two. It's God's good gift to you. To believe. That's a gift that you believe. That that then allows you to have the ability to read and to understand in a way that's saving and effective. Yes on that. Um, but I think it's probably a both and. There's a dialectic here that goes back and forth. I mean, the Spirit allow, you know, reveals Himself. We go to the Scriptures for confirmation, but the Scriptures as well continue to draw out and articulate and broaden the scope of our faith and deepen it. So that that back and forth dynamic, I think, is something that really is constitutive of what Christian existence is, and this might be a little bit of a shocker to you, now and forever. Forever. Learning doesn't stop when we're glorified. Now this is where I differ from the Eastern tradition a little bit. Okay, so you have, you, Again, you got Genelette. I don't believe we become divinized, at least in the sense of the distinction between the creator and the creature is done away with once we're in heaven or in the new heavens and new earth. I think we're still a fully creature. We're not gods. We're glorified. We're truly human. Glorified humans. But we're not gods. So our knowledge doesn't become infinite now that we're in heaven. And guess what? I can't wait. We're all going to go to seminary with Jesus in heaven. Right? We're going to go to school together and learn from God in heaven and and isn't it fascinating that here's Jesus, the glorified Son of God, on the far side of the crucifixion, with disciples on the road to the Emmaus and in the upper room, and what's the glorified Jesus doing with them? He is opening the Bible with them. I mean, I have to believe that that will be part of what our identity is in heaven for, forever. Yeah, And that sounds like Cookville, you know, people on the streets. But, well, I tell you what, that is, that's the hope of the Gospel, I think. Yeah.
How are we doing on time? Not great. Um, I talk, uh, this, this all is related to our discussion last week about the relationship between reason and faith. I'm not going to go back to that. I do want to say just two more things, and then uh, maybe three, and, I'll, and I'll, let, I'll let it go. All right. Number one, um, I do think we have to have in our mind a distinction between, how, between knowing the fact that you know something or you come to know something and being. This is going to be very important for our next six weeks together, talking about the Old Testament and the Trinity. Because here's the question that I think immediately rises. Um, did Moses know that God was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? I mean, did David, when he said, Oh God, you are my God? Or did Psalm 8, which seems to sound rather Trinitarian in its language, that was David thinking Nicaea? Um, fully God, fully man? I mean, was, was he thinking in this way? And um, that troubled me for a very long time, right? And I will just say, I do think that particular kind of understanding is a species of what we might call 19th century historicism. And what does that mean? That means that texts get locked into their historical moment and not just locked there in the sense of understanding the cultural milieu that gave rise to that text, but also saying that the scope, the meaning, the significance of that text is also locked in that self-same world. Right. And this is where I think we make a distinction between what people knew and the being of God. Because this, are you kind of tracking with me here? Why? Because God does not wait till Matthew 1 or John 1, 1 to trinitize himself. Right, that's not the right word, but uh, you know what I mean. He, he doesn't wait then. It's not baby in the manger. Now all of a sudden God has morphed into this triune being. He's not. In fact, um, it's, it's, it's ingredient to our Christian confession that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, different persons, yet single in essence, is the identity of God forever. So the question then is, well, then how do we read the Old Testament Trinitarianly? How do we read the Old Testament God and be able to say with any kind of rational or theological consistency that that God was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit when Moses probably would have had no idea what you were talking about in those terms? And that's where we make a distinction between knowledge and being. Moses might not have known it, but his words, the words that he left us, the words that David left us, the words that Isaiah left us, those words are there now and not locked into the authorship world of Moses himself. But they are God's words. They're within his providence and his control. And it's by those words where God continues now to communicate his own being, which is a triune. Now, I've gotten into a little bit of a Thomas Aquinas kick over the past several months, and um, I hope to get over it soon, actually. Um, but, uh, you know, Aquinas raises the question about the name of God, primarily that tetragrammaton name, the fourfold uh, letter name, yod Hey, vav Hey. You, you'll see it written out, Yahweh, or in most of our English Bibles, it's what? Jehovah, right? Jehovah. And that's God's personal name. Um, all the other names that you use about God are, are appellatives. 
um, speaking about his character or his strength or his power or his knowledge or his goodness, his beneficence. All of those names are appellatives that describe some facet of the character of God. But the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, Jehovah, however you want to say that, that's God's personal name. We don't understand that name on the basis of its etymology, where it comes from, what its roots, root words are. Just like, you know, we don't look at Smith here. Any Smiths in the room? I'm sure you're around somewhere. We don't look at Smith and then think, oh, Smith, their great, great grandparents must have worked in a forgery or they, you know, they, they did horseshoes back in. We don't think about people's names that way. We attach the person to the name. My wife's name is Naomi, right? I mean, I don't think of Naomi and then try to figure out who Naomi is on the basis of the etymology of her name. And now that's how I understand Naomi. I don't, Naomi's that person right there. I've affixed that name to her through how she's come to me. That's the Tetragrammaton. That's God's name. That's how we understand who He is. That's how we pick Him out. And Aquinas says that name is best understood as the essence of God's godness that's shared by all the members of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that whenever the name of Yahweh appears in the Old Testament, we have to be thinking in Trinitarian terms. Why? Because Moses intended that? Because David intended that in their particular moment? I don't know. That's a question that I really can't answer, but am not all that interested in answering. Because God's being precedes whatever knowledge Moses or David, and let's just go and say it, you and me, might have in a particular moment. Okay? Um, I wanted to say other things, but anybody want to have a final word, final question before we go get our children? Matthew? Yeah. Yeah. I think this is, you know, the way in which we sort of how, how we frame these questions because I, I I follow your instincts on this, and the way in which I try to frame them myself is not to think necessarily in binary categories. I don't think you are either. Um, but what I, what I try to think is is theological and churchly proper ordering. How how do we order things? How do we keep the cart before the you know after the horse or however that's supposed to be? Um, and I think you're right on that. It's why. Do we care about social justice, whatever that big canard means? And I think it's important. But I think, why do we care about that? Why do we think about what it means to be a good neighbor? Why do we think about, and you can just go, well, the answer to that is primarily because what it means to be in the, in the Christian faith is to be under the authority of God's very being. Well, how do we do that? Well, in the worlds of Karl Barth, there's no authority of Jesus without the authority of the Bible. You can't, you can't just have one without the other. And it's Scripture that's shaping and compelling us to think about our mode of being, our faithful presence, our prophetic existence in the world. The Bible shaping that existence in the world. And what does that existence do? It points to the fact, and we steal from Tom right here, but it points to the fact that Jesus is Lord and no one else is. No one else is. Well, how do we do that? It's the Scriptures that do that. 
Father, take these things. We're throwing a lot of spaghetti up against the wall, Lord. And I pray that you will um, uh, will let more, the more salient aspects sort of settle into our hearts and minds. Give us good instincts. That's what we're asking for, God. We want good instincts, Christian instincts. When we read the Bible and when we ask the most important question that we can ask as human beings, who is God? And what is God doing in my life and in the world? Give us good instincts, Lord, to raise those questions well in our attendance to the Word and in our life of faith together. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.